It's quite intimidating to stand here in this pulpit or on this platform thinking about all the preachers that have gone before me. In fact, All Souls takes preaching incredibly serious. So serious, in fact, that uh, you may not know as a congregation that All Souls invested in some genetic engineering a few years ago to come up with the extraordinary best preacher possible. And the result is before you. Uh, The genetic blend was Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher of the 19th century. Oratory skills, theological understanding. But then we wanted to come forward and we took some DNA from Chris Wright. His intelligence and understanding. But then also is known for its cultural relevance. So we took a little bit of Tim Keller's DNA and blended that in as well. And what you have before you is the result. Unfortunately, none of the skills but Spurgeon's waistline, Chris's jazz hands, and Tim Keller's hairline. So I'm sorry, what you don't have before you tonight is an exceptional preacher. I want to be, but I'm not. I want to be an exceptional leader as a CEO of a Christian charity, but I'm probably not. When I was 10 years old, I wanted to be an extraordinary rugby player for Wales, but I never accomplished that. I want to be a good husband, and on my best days, I'm okay. You see, I don't think I'm extraordinary in any particular way, whether as a chief executive of a charity uh, that has been a CEO of a large children's charity, held five full-time other jobs since leading university, I just hope that I'm a reasonable boss trying to be extraordinary at my be- on my best days. I co-developed the Ergon Fellowship here at church with a former member of staff called Charmaine Muir, and I've led it for nine years. I've been a fellowship group leader, a support group leader, led international student work and student groups. I've done other things in church, and I'm told that I've got reasonable t- gifts of teaching, but I'm not an extraordinary Christian leader. As I said, I've been married over 20 years. And as I said, I hope that I'm a loving husband who serves his wife, but I'm not an extraordinary husband. Most of us sitting here tonight would probably say the same thing about ourselves, that we're, on our good days, pretty good, but we're not extraordinary. And yet, there is something deep inside of us, isn't there, that wants to be extraordinary. I was speaking to somebody this morning who was uh, finding out that I was preaching this evening and I gave her the title. I said, it's about becoming extraordinary. And she said, that's such a 5.30 service title. <laughs> I'm sure that was meant with goodwill that all of you want to become exceptional. You see, it is deeply rooted into every human's DNA that we want to be exceptional. And some people sitting here tonight think that that's a ridiculous claim because you will feel inadequate. You will have imposter syndrome. But as I've done my research for this evening, countless articles in psychological and sociological journals have shown that deep down, we all want to be special. We want to be in some way extraordinary. That's why there's such power in stories that uh, talk about 
the exceptional hero or heroine. From Star Wars to Harry Potter, from John Wick to Jane Austen, we love stories, don't we, where the ordinary becomes extraordinary. Where the person who's ignored by everybody is suddenly found out to be something very special. Well, I want to suggest tonight that there is a power outside of fiction that can transform what we think, how we think, what we do and what we desire beyond the ordinary of this world. In short, a power that takes our ordinariness and expects something extraordinary. And we'll see it explained in this short little book, a letter that in its original Greek is only 335 words. It's written by one man, Paul, to his friend Philemon about a runaway, name, a runaway slave named Omnisius, who has lately become Paul's assistant. What I want to do tonight is not do a deep, deep dive exposition of the book of Philemon. And in fact, it may be frustrating for some of you to know that I won't explore some of the big themes in great detail. What I want to do is look at how the gospel transforms Philemon, Onesimus, and Paul into extraordinary people of God and apply that to our workplace. Maybe it's no accident that Workplace Sunday is today. Um, after all, uh, I was looking at the calendar and uh, this Sunday is one of only two in the whole month where there's no bank holiday tomorrow. So at least I can say when you go back to work tomorrow. <laughs> but what this letter lacks in length, it makes up for in the power of its message. And I hope that we will carry the power of that message out of church this evening and into our week. We will see that this letter has the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to turn our worlds upside down. The power to make a slave the brother of a slave owner. The power to make a slave master willingly give up his privilege and rights so that his former slave could flourish. Now let's look briefly at the letter and we can piece together some of the background to this letter from what Paul writes. We know and we can deduce that Philemon was a wealthy citizen from Colossae. He had encountered Paul in Ephesus. We don't know if it was a planned business trip that Philemon was taking um, or whether he'd heard about this strange pre- preacher preaching a ridiculous gospel and wanted to go and hear it. All we know is that they met. And when Philemon met Paul and heard the gospel, he received it, believed it, accepted it and embraced it. We know that uh, he stayed with Paul for some time, we don't know how long, but they certainly became friends. So that later, when Epaphras started a Jesus community in Colossae, Philemon was an obvious choice to be one of its leaders and to host a church in his nice big house. And with Philemon's wealth, he would have owned slaves, and one of those slaves was Onesimus. Now, we don't know whether Onesimus was found cheating and robbing Philemon, and that's why he fleed, or whether he saw the chance for freedom and stole from Philemon to fund his getaway. But we do know that he fleed and that he got away, and he got to Rome. Now, whether he ran there because it was the world city of its day, 
It had a shadow economy where a runaway slave could blend in. We don't know why he went to Rome, and we don't know how he met Paul. We just know that he did. Was it a coincidental chance meeting? Or was he really destitute, and he'd heard something about this community who believed some ridiculous things, but were radical in how they viewed human nature, how they the status between slave and free was eroded, how this community was incredibly generous with its charity. You see, what we, what we don't know is how they met, but what we do know is that Onesimus, like Philemon, responded to the gospel. He not only responded, he embraced it, and we learned that he was not just a member of a congregation, but he became Paul's assistant. We also don't know when Onesimus and Paul realised the connection to Philemon. Was it straight away, or was it quite a bit later? And we can only wonder, can't we, what an awkward moment that must have been. Whose friendship would Paul value most? Would he choose uh, the wealthy church leader or his invaluable assistant? Or there was, of course, a third option. He could keep quiet, keep them apart, and hope to maintain this new status quo, however unstable it might actually be. Well, we find what Paul chooses to do in the letter, a letter that demonstrates how the gospel changes everything for those who believe. It certainly changed Omnisimus. Perhaps he is the person we have most sympathy for, isn't he? He is the slave who escaped, found freedom and meaning in the church as Paul's assistant. We are with Onesimus because we abhor slavery as an evil institution. And we're glad that he ran away and escaped. We're glad that he found safety in the church in Rome. And we want to believe that he found eventually some sort of fulfillment as Paul's assistant. But now, we see in this letter, Paul was asking him to go back to the person who owned him. And he willingly was going to submit to take the letter back and relay Paul's message to Philemon. What are the implications of that willingness to go back that can apply to our lives today? Let me just suggest a couple very quickly. First, we see that Onesimus was willing to be would submit to not just Paul's will, but God's will, and to be useful wherever he was sent. Now, it may not be immediately apparent from the text, but Paul uses a play on words in this letter. Because the name Omnisimus, when it's translated, actually means useful. So Paul is saying to Philemon in verse 11, he that is called useful was actually useless to you. He wasn't a good worker. But now he truly lives up to the meaning of his name because he is useful to me. Formerly, Omnisimus had grudgingly served Philemon, probably doing only the bare minimum and stealing everything he could as he looked for opportunities to escape. But now he's a Christian. Now he's asked to return to his former slave master and he's ready to, and willing to render whatever service is required of him, ready to potentially be punished or even executed. Now the challenge for us is to be like Onesimus, to work well and be useful 
wherever God has placed us. It's a challenge, isn't it? Because I doubt whether any of us have been asked to make the sacrifice that Onesimus was being asked to make here. But in everyday terms, I know that I have been far from useful in some of my jobs. I've coasted in lots of the work that I've done. One of the most excruciatingly painful moments of my career was an appraisal with a former boss who just spent an hour rebuking me for coasting for the previous year. I was deeply hurt, deeply annoyed, angry, and challenged her. I had met all my KPIs. I'd met all my objectives, and yet she could see that I was coasting. That was dishonouring to God. That was not being an Onesimus. Second, Onesimus was asked to trust God, even to the point of courage, ultimate courage and sacrifice. Onesimus here shows he trusts Paul, but he also trusts God, doesn't he, even more. Him going back to Philemon was either extraordinarily foolish or incredibly courageous. How much do we trust God to look foolish but really be courageous? You see, sometimes we are so focused on the fact that God is true, we forget that God is also good. We probably accepted the former, that God is true, most of, most of our lives, but we really struggle at times to remember that he is good. When things don't go our way, God is still good. When it becomes clear that we're called to go somewhere where we don't really want to go, God is still good. When we see bad people prosper, when terrible behaviour is not punished, when poor performance is not called out, God is still good, even if that seems to be allowed. It can be really difficult to believe that all things, as Paul writes in Romans, that all things work for the good of those who love him according to God's purpose, when we see poor performance, bad people flourish. How can a good God allow that? Omnisimus trusted in God's goodness. That's what gave him courage to go back. Do we have the courage in our workplaces to speak truth in love when it's uncomfortable? To go to uncomfortable places, even if that requires sacrifice? Let me give you a few examples of what that might mean and what it's looked like in my life. My current job is leading a Christian charity called CARE, Christian Action Research and Education. It's a reasonably respected and well-known evangelical Christian charity working with politicians in Westminster. There's a lot of the work that they do that I, before starting to work there, loved. I love politics. I've been involved in politics. I wanted Christians to be represented in politics. I wanted politicians to accept and hear an authentic Christian voice in the public square. And I felt CARE was doing that really well. And then came the opportunity to lead the organisation. Well, I'd been a comfortable bystander on the sidelines. It was really flattering to my ego to be offered the job. But when it became a reality, wow, the reality that it was an uncomfortable place really came to my mind. It was a struggle to accept the job because I knew what it would entail. I've worked there for a year and a half 
And there have been countless articles calling us every name under the sun because of our Christian beliefs and the fact that we represent them in the public square. I didn't even know then what I know now in terms of how difficult it would be, but I did know it would be difficult. But I also knew that God was calling me there. I am not brave. I am not uniquely, extraordinarily skilled in being a public spokesman for Christianity. But I knew God was calling me to that place. I trusted that he was good. But it's not just in the big decisions, is it? It's in the small ones. We've got to trust God is good when we're made redundant. We've got to trust God to, is good even when we are wronged in our workplace. God is not just true, he is good. When we know that, understand it, accept it and embrace it, like omniscience, we can trust to the point of courage and even sacrifice. Omniscience was changed by the gospel. And so was Philemon. Can you imagine how Philemon felt as a church leader, hearing that the Apostle Paul was writing to you and your church? How amazing was that? There must have been great excitement. Wow, the Apostle Paul is writing to us, to me. And then Omniscius turns up with a letter. Well, that's odd. This is a person I wasn't expecting to see again. Now, I don't know if you listen to podcasts, but recently there's a podcast called Rest is History that has got Tom Holland uh, as one of the, the hosts of it. And they were talking about Roman slavery and whether Rome was a slave economy and society. What was shocking is the stories that, for example, that uh, one uh, a wealthy Roman citizen would go for dinner to another wealthy Roman's house. One way of sending a thank you gift afterwards was to send a slave. It was a nice alternative to a bunch of flowers or a bottle of wine. Shocking, horrific. Maybe Philemon thought Paul was being a good Roman citizen. Thank you for all your service, Philemon. I'm sending you back the slave that you lost a few years ago. But we see that's not what Paul is asking. But the letter starts out so well. Philemon is praised. Wow, he must have felt so encouraged when he hears those first verses from verse 4 to 7. He would have been puffed up, really glad to know that Paul was looking favourably at his work. But slavery was a blind spot. And that blind spot is one of the things that the gospel works on in all of us. Because we all have blind spots, don't we? For Philemon was a genuine and sincere believer, but he conformed to the world's expectations in terms of its social order. Paul said that in God's economy, our status is transformed. And I don't mean this flippantly when I suggest that for Philemon, slavery was a blind spot. We all have our blind spots. And in my experience, they're shown up by the most unlikely people. At Spurgeon's, uh, which was the children's charity that I ran for seven years, I had the immense privilege of going around the country visiting services and projects. And you'd hear some wonderful stories of the work that was being done in local communities. And where we had Christians running local projects, which wasn't everywhere, 
there would normally be a Bible study class linked to some sort of class or food bank uh, or activity for families. And in one project in Birmingham, uh, one such Bible study was being run. A group of women would gather in a children's centre to study the Bible and then they would have lunch together whilst their children were playing safely uh, next door. Now I visited this and one of the leaders wanted to tell me a story. She said that each week um, the, the, the cooking staff, the catering staff would prepare the meal. They would all sit down and all have a communal meal, parents and staff together. And it was a great time. And then one week they were studying the Jesus feeding the 5,000. They studied it in the, in the, very closely. The women seemed to be getting quite a lot out of it. And one woman sort of said, can I ask a question? Yes, said, yes said the member staff. So I look at these words, she said, and um, what strikes me is that everybody had the same meal. This had never occurred to the member of staff. So she said, yeah, that's a really good point. It's the equality under Jesus. She said, yes, but if that's the case, why do the catering staff keep the best apple crumble for the staff to come in later this afternoon and not give it to us? You see, they had a blind spot. The catering staff were doing it genuinely because they thought it was a nice thing to do for the afternoon shift. What the mother saw was that the the choice food was being kept for the paid employees while the service users were getting the dregs. That woman highlighted a blind spot. I've had the privilege, whilst working with lots of children and young people, to encounter some remarkable young people. Two always stick in my mind. One was a little boy of nine. He had been expelled from five schools in four years. Finally, he'd settled down. I was asking him about his behaviour problems, how they were being dealt with in the school. And I said, you seem to have settled down well in this school. What's changed? He said, I had to look at myself and I didn't like the person I'd become. That was from a nine-year-old boy. It challenged me to take a greater care in looking at myself and what my blind spots were. Did I like the person I was becoming? There was another young man, 16, who was in a pupil referral unit, sort of the place where young offenders go when schools no no longer want to take them. Again, he'd been excluded from several schools in a short space of time. I asked him, again, why he'd settled down in the pupil referral unit. He said, well, I looked at everything that had gone on. I always used to blame my teachers, blame my school, blame my parents, blame my friends. But when I got here, I realised the common thread was me. People from surprising places highlight surprising things. And what I want to suggest to you tonight is that we all have our blind spots and who are we exposing and making our lives accountable so that those blind spots are being revealed. I have to be disciplined in making sure that I am accountable. And yes, I'm the boss at work, but I'm also accountable to every member of our team. I want to make sure that they have the right to tell me when I'm going wrong. Accountability is risky 
It makes us vulnerable and it's uncomfortable, but it does expose our blind spots. The second way the gospel made Philemon remarkable is not just exposing his blind spots, but it asked him to forgive. Now, Philemon is asked to forgive in a great big way. And sometimes we are called similarly to make great big acts of forgiveness. But the reality for most of us is that also we have lots of little hurts that occur at work each day. We are let down by people. We are betrayed by people in minor and small little ways. People disappoint us. We have to forgive them. That's not comfortable. That's not easy. And it's easy to overlook our responsibility to not just ignore, not just set to one side, but to actually forgive. Again, there are those examples in my life that happen every day, the small, uh, everyday, mundane things that I have to forgive people for. But there are also times when the challenge is greater. There are two or three examples in my life that I've really struggled with to forgive people. One was when I knew a member of my team was potentially going to make false sexual um, accusations against me about sexual misconduct. Most people in my work were not aware of that, but I was told that she was going to make it because I had given her a bad review, that she knew that she probably wasn't going to get on in, uh, in the team, and she wanted to get rid of me. Now, actually, what happened was that nothing was ever claimed. There was no, there was no proof because nothing had happened. But I knew that that thought had gone through that, my colleague's mind. How would I work with her each day? How would I respect her for the work that she was doing? I grappled and struggled with that for many months before having to set it at the foot of the cross and forgive her and move on. I had to, suggest, I had to make, make peace with her, not actually out in the open because she actually didn't know that I knew what she was thinking about doing. I was going to have false lies said about me, false accusations said about me. The fact that it didn't happen didn't mean that I could forget that easily. Like Philemon, we are asked to forgive, not just in our private lives, but in our workplace. And third, Philemon is being asked to give up his rights for his brother's flourishing. That means we stand up for others before we claim our own rights. A few months ago, I was writing an article on whether Christians should strike or not. And John Stott uh, stood in the pulpit uh, in church here in the 1970s and preached a sermon on strikes and industrial relations. And what he pointed out was that we have rights and responsibilities to others. And where industrial relations break down is where we are so quick to claim our own rights and neglect our responsibility to others. He challenged the congregation at that time to say that the Christian response is to think first of our responsibility to others before trying to claim our own rights. Again, how does that play out in the workplace? It will play out in the big and the small. Again, to give you just a mundane, everyday example... 
When I contract somebody to deliver a piece of work, I expect them to deliver it. I've paid them. I demand the product that I've paid for. Recently, we commissioned somebody to write a course for us. That person became ill. The course has never yet been delivered. I could have stood up on my rights and said, I've paid you, I demand my product, you must give it to me. But I knew that that person had serious health issues, both emotional, mental and physical. And the act of generosity, the responsibility for me to love them and care for them well, was for me to give up my right to demand the product and to think about their care and be compassionate. So we see that the gospel transforms Onesimus. We see it transforms Philemon. And lastly, it transforms Paul, doesn't it? Paul, the former Pharisee, who now preaches and lives a gospel of who now preaches and lives a gospel of grace, but he was formerly a brutal persecutor of Christians. He was converted to become a peacemaker, who seeks to reconcile the broken relationships. But that's not how he started out, was it? The gospel transformed him. And we need to see how that changed, how Paul used power. If you look at the letter to Philemon, it is uh, unique in a couple of different ways. One of which is that Paul normally introduces himself in a letter as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. But in this one, do you see, he says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. From the very beginning, Paul decides not to use his status and his, uh, his, and his authority to command Philemon. He wants to empower Philemon to do the right thing in the gospel. He never commands Philemon to do the right thing in this letter. He is being like God. Paul is like God because God gives away power. In Jesus, we see Jesus using his power to empower others for their own flourishing. In the Ergon Fellowship Programme, we take a whole month module to look at the issue of power, how God uses it, and how that challenges us to use the power that we're given. Now, many of you will say, well, I'm not that powerful, Ross. This doesn't apply to me. I'm not an apostle. I don't have his authority or his status. Well, the reality is we are all powerful in different ways. And yes, some have greater power than others, but we are all have a sphere of influence. Just think of a doctor's surgery. In terms of the hierarchy, in terms of the pay grades, the doctor is at the top of the scale, isn't he? He is the most powerful person in the surgery. Yet, at eight o'clock in the morning, when you try to, if you want to see the doctor, at least in my surgery, the most powerful person in that surgery is the receptionist. She's the gatekeeper to the doctors. She is the one that sets the tone to the whole office. You see, the secretary does not look like the most powerful person in the office, but she really is. I wonder who the most powerful person in your office is in terms of setting the workplace culture. What is acceptable and normal behavior? Is it you? Could it be you? Do you use your power in that way? You see, Paul, like God, did not seek to hoard power, did not seek to use power to direct, 
but rather give power away to Philemon to make the decision. Giving power away in that way is risky. It's dangerous. But ultimately, it's the godly thing to do. And Paul is also a peacemaker. He seeks reconciliation and restoration, doesn't he? That's his overriding objective in this whole letter, to restore relationship. It's a priority to Paul. And he is willing to bear the cost of that reconciliation, to be the peacemaker, whatever it costs. At this point, I just want to take a little bit of a break and um, acknowledge that whilst I have been endeavouring and working diligently and hard for nine years on the Ergon Fellowship, that's not how most people in church know me. They know me because I appeared on the repair shop. That's me, beardless, with mum and dad, and two members of the repair shop. We were getting a crown that was owned by my grandmother. She won a competition in Wales for reciting poetry, uh, and we were getting it restored. Um, I think the repair shop is one of the most uh, gospel-centred programmes on TV. On the one hand, you see you see the anti-gospel Christian programme of Bargain Hunt. It is all about the money. Get an antique, sell it on, make a profit. In the middle, you've got the Antiques Roadshow, where it looks very worthy, family heirlooms, but everybody really wants to know the value of the product. And then you have the repair shop. A team of people who take broken things and make them like new. How much more Christian can you get than the repair shop? After all, wasn't God's and Jesus' whole purpose coming to earth? Jesus came to earth to mend the brokenness of our world. It was the repair shop writ large. And we are called to be people who repair, people who are reconcilers, people who restore things. And sometimes that reconciliation has a cost. You see, I got my crown restored for free on the, on the repair shop. But the act of reconciling us to God is very costly. A cost that only Jesus could pay. That's why, if you don't know what that cost is and you've never heard about it before, you definitely should go to Christianity Explored tomorrow, uh, tomorrow evening. But for many of us, we have heard that message. We just don't always realise and live it out practically in our lives. You see, Philemon is, only, uh, is the only letter in the Bible, only letter in the New Testament, that doesn't mention the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And yet, it's so central to the message of Philemon, isn't it? You cannot read this letter without thinking of Christ's actions on our behalf. Martin Luther once wrote that we are all the Lord's omnissimi. I don't know if omnissimi is actually the plural of omnissimus, but Martin Luther thought it was. And he had a point. After all, we've all fled our heavenly master, haven't we? But providentially been brought back to him. We've been brought back to him 
because of an advocate who is willing to pay a price that we could not pay ourselves. But the amazing thing is, the restoration of our relationship with the heavenly, our Heavenly Father is not just going back to what was, but looking forward to what is going to be. And that will be wonderfully new, wonderfully renewed. So we are indeed all omnissimi. We are those who are transformed by the gospel to work willingly and diligently to be courageous in trusting God. But we're all also Philemon's. We're asked to be extraordinary in our response to the gospel, in forgiving others, in recognising our blind spots, and in being ready to give up our rights to serve others. And of course, we're all Paul's as well. We can be reconcilers and restorers. We have the power to love our neighbour and carry out redemptive acts that point to the day when all things will be reconciled, healed and redeemed. We come to the epilogue. The epilogue to this letter is the fact that we actually don't know how the story ends. The letter was personal to Philemon, but it was not private. Like our faith, it is deeply personal But our faith should never be private, should it? It was read to the whole church. It lasted and it was handed down. That probably suggests that Philemon may well have done more than Paul could have expected him. Philemon really was transformed by the gospel to do more than Paul could have ever expected. We don't know what the outcome was, but we do know that a few decades later, that there was a letter between two bishops in the region. One, the Bishop of Ephesus, was called Onesimus. Was it the same Onesimus who was welcomed back to Colossae as a brother? Maybe. But Onesimus was a common slave name. So maybe it wasn't this Onesimus, but another slave who was freed as a result of what Philemon was obliged and decided to do for this Onesimus. The the slave who became a brother would have meant that other slaves in Philemon's house would have said, well, why aren't we brothers as well? It would have been untenable, wouldn't it, for Philemon to forgive and free one slave and feel that he could maintain the others. Now, there's been right and sometimes justifiable uh, criticism of Paul that he did not call out the institution of slavery. And it is, uh, it is quite true what one commentator said, that in some ways we are frustrated by that. But we also need to realise that while Paul and Philemon are no Wilberforces, Wilberforce would not have been possible without Philemon. Because becoming extraordinary is not about receiving superpowers. If you're looking for superpowers, you've come to the wrong place. But if extraordinary means being changed by a gospel of love, by a gospel of grace, recognising that we believe in a God of the universe who is good, well, if we believe that, if we accept it, if we embrace it, if we live it, then something, something extraordinary does happen. Because in that transformation, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor male nor female, because we are all one in Christ Jesus.
In that, in those circumstances, we will become extraordinary. We will become pointed, people who point to the cross. People who will stand distinct from the world's standards. We will trust in the one that is the transformer above all transformers. We will have courage to be workers in his name. And in that, in those circumstances, we will become extraordinary. As the musicians come back to the stage, let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that letters like the one to Philemon are passed down faithfully through the generations. And we thank you that in them, we see the power of the gospel to transform the ordinary into the extraordinary. We pray that we will be omnisimuses, we will be Philemons, we will be Pauls as we go into work tomorrow. We pray that we will have the courage to be distinctive. We pray that we will be ambassadors of your grace. We pray that we will be those who reconcile and restore. We pray that all of this in the power of your son's name. Amen.